0: Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories,
1: we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. I'm Diane Guerrero, and this is How It Is, where women tell their own stories in their own words. We're unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. Today, we find out how play can transform our lives and how we can all be a little more playful
2: you're a queen what you you're a woman day you're owning it you're own every day a queen what just you you're a woman every day i love it, you it. we deserve to be we deserve to be heard
1: Remember when you were a kid and playing was just the most important thing in the world? Instead of awkward adult dates, you got to have play dates where all you did was go to the playground and do arts and crafts or play make-believe. Those were the days. When I was a kid, I used to spend hours outside playing hide-and-go-seek, rollerblading, roller skating, anything that had wheels (laughs) I would wanna be on. It was so fun discovering new things about yourself and you couldn't wait to wake up for the next day so you could play some more. We have some incredible women here today and I can't wait for you to hear from artist Chantelle Martin, writer Nora McInerney, and soccer star Abby Wambach. Our first storyteller today never stopped playing. Chantelle Martin is an artist. Even if you don't know her name, you've seen her black and white drawings. She's collaborated with everyone from Kendrick Lamar and Google Creative Lab to clothing brands like Puma and Max Mara. And all because she never quit playing. Chantel is one of those women who managed to turn her own play into a career and get paid for it. As an actress, this is something I can totally relate to. I'm playing pretend for real. But it's a tricky balance for creative people because where do you draw the line? (laughs) Get it, draw the line? I'm punny. But seriously, what does it mean to play when
2: your play becomes work? When I think about play, it's funny, instantly I think about work because I think the two are, for me, so interwoven. I draw as a career, you know, I travel around the world. I meet really amazing people. I collaborate with these people. I work on really amazing projects. And I do that all with this tool of a pen or a marker or a pencil. And for me, that's kind of the epitome of play. It's it's something that I'm passionate about, something that we all do as kids naturally, something that I've always continued to do throughout my life. And You know, I'm very fortunate enough that that's turned into my work. And and if play isn't an essential part of your work life or your work day, you know, that's also okay. But you need to find that space. You need to find that balance. It's interesting. I ask a lot of adults, you know, can you draw? And they'll say, no, you know, I, I can't draw. And I say, well, that's absurd because, you know, you drew as a two-year-old, as a three-year-old, as a four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe even a nine, ten-year-old. Of course you can draw. You can do something as a full-grown adult that you could do as a little child. But I do remember the first time where I was drawing and it wasn't what you know my mum was drawing. So my mum drew a picture of our dog Tammy at the time and I remember just being kind of dumbfounded that I was like wow like The dog that she just drew looks like our dog. That's magic. That's amazing. There's some real gift there or sorcery. And then I tried to do it and realised I couldn't. And I remember feeling so discouraged that there was this tool or this practice or this activity that was accessible to me and that I had been doing it, but somehow I couldn't tap into it in the way that my mum did. And I think that's a really kind of special stage within all children's lives you know there's this moment where your house or your dog or the the person doesn't look like the teacher's house or it doesn't look like your parents house and it doesn't look like how they've told you to draw it or how they've you know kind of um, been teaching you to draw it and there's this moment where you start to believe that you can't and they can drawing is a way that you know regardless of being an artist or not it's a way that we get to extract ourselves and put ourselves on on paper. It's a way that we get to experience something really personal between our head and our hand, and that practice or that exercise is so beneficial. Yet we take it away from from people at such a young age. You know, we're all trying to find ourselves. We're all trying to seek ourselves, and and this is something we naturally do as children so why would you not do that as an adult you know and as children we do it quite naturally because it is a part of our play and it is a part of games in the playground and and it it is a part of what we do kind of every day as as kids And, and then you know suddenly we grow up and it all has to be serious and it has to be about work and it has to be about where we're from you know if i was to ask you who are you and you were to answer Without saying what you do, where you're from and the roles that you play in life, how would you answer? And it doesn't matter how educated you are, how smart you are, how travelled you are, how old you are. As adults, we all struggle to answer this question of who we are at the core as people because we are so caught up with where we're from. We are so caught up of what we do. We are so caught up with the roles that we play in life because those are now the labels that we carry. Whereas if you ask children, they know who they are because they play every day. They are themselves every day. They're, they're honest with themselves every day. They haven't applied those labels yet to themselves of, of kind of the roles or jobs that they play in life. and And so, it seems bizarre that you would stop doing that as adults because, you know, isn't that the whole point that we're on this planet, is to figure out who we are at the core. And, you know, it seems to, to be a shame to kind of like go through life and then pass away, only really knowing what we've done and where we're from. I'm Chantel Martin, an artist, a questioner, a thinker, a connector, a collaborator. I'm someone that is just trying to figure out life through drawing and through playing and through experiencing.
1: Wow, it is so powerful. And it's kind of made me realize just now why I get so uncomfortable when people ask me what I do. It's so impersonal. It's like, what do you do? What do you have? What do you have to give? Instead of asking, who are you? What do you love? How, how do you laugh? What makes you happy? Can we all make a pledge together right now? The next time we're at a party and we meet someone new, let's promise not to ask them what they do or where they're from. Instead, do something playful. Ask what makes them laugh. Hey, I'm Diane. Nice to meet you. What makes you laugh? <laughs> See, that's making me laugh right now. I, would lo- I love that it might it might seem weird at first, but trust me, we ask everyone who comes to the show that question, and sometimes their answers like our lady Nora McInerney's are just too good
0: okay oh, uh honestly, people falling <laughs> usually usually when i honestly when I fall or anything embarrassing happens to me, I really, truly. Um, enjoy it the other day I was walking really quickly into a target and the automatic doors were not ready for the speed at which I travel and I just walked right into them there was an audience and I laughed so hard even thinking about it now (laughs) even thinking about it now it's so great
1: Nora McInerney knows that sometimes a good laugh can get you through some real shit. She's a writer and the host of Terrible, Thanks for Asking, a podcast that favors real talk over small talk. When she had a miscarriage and lost both her father and her husband Aaron all in the span of weeks, she chronicled it all. First on a blog and later in her book, It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too. Through it all, she was taking care of her toddler son, Ralph, and like any new parents, Nora and Aaron just wanted to be silly with their son. So Nora had no choice but to set her grief aside and just play, which turned out to be a really good thing.
0: Right from the beginning, Ralph was born into a house and into a family and into a whole situation where the world was never going to revolve around him, where his dad was sick. His dad had stage four brain cancer. And it's almost as if this child entered the world and knew that there was something bigger going on or there was something big going on. And he was a part of it, but he wasn't He wasn't everything. Um, and And part of me does feel... Almost guilty for that. But really, I feel like we're giving him a gift that he will realize when he's older, <laughs> like all the best gifts. And, you know, Aaron was sick. He was such a good dad. We had Ralph knowing that Aaron's life was not going to be a long one. We didn't know if he would be there for Ralph's first day of kindergarten or for Ralph's graduation or for Ralph's wedding. We had a feeling he wouldn't be, but we went into it with, you know, all the best intentions and really having Ralph with Aaron was an exercise in just appreciating where we were. And when I look at the beginning of my first child's life, I had a newborn baby who are so needy Horses walk after like two hours, by the way, and babies are like, I can't do anything for like ever. And I had a brand new baby. I had a husband who had just had a recurrence of his of his brain tumor, who had just had another brain surgery, who was now doing a whole new, really intense, invasive chemo that meant that he would spend three days in the hospital away from us every month and that listing that out now, I think, oh, God, that's so much. But, I mean, they had to be hard. I know that they were hard, but they were also the happiest days of my life. And I can truly say that. I can truly say that changing Ralph on, like, a dirty chair in the oncology center that, you know, I'm like, God, I don't know how many butts have sat on this. Well, Aaron gets his infusion and we watch, you know, Arrested Development on, Aaron's laptop. That was the happiest I've I've been in like my entire life. And no matter how sick Aaron was, and he was so sick, um, they did this kind of chemo where when he got it, he would have to <laughs> he would have to shave his whole body. He would have to shave his whole body. He had a beard, he'd have to shave it off. And when you're a man who's worn a beard for a long time, shaving your beard off is so shocking. It disgusts your wife, honestly. I was just like, oh my God, you look like a giant 16-year-old. And sometimes he'd like shave half of his body and half of his face and come out just for the reaction. It was always so funny. Like Ralph used to laugh at Aaron, like if Aaron did anything. I remember when Ralph was um, really tiny and Aaron wrapped him up in a swaddle and then held him up to me. And Ralph's eyes are open. He's so alert. He's like a little infant. And Aaron just starts eating him like a corn on the cob. But like a cartoon corn on the cob where you eat it like a typewriter and then ding, back to the beginning. Like ding. Um, He used to, when Ralph was wrapped in a swaddle, hold him like a guitar and pretend to strum him. But like strum him hard. Like he was definitely right. He wasn't playing like James Taylor. He was, He was playing some other I I don't know the names of any band so some cool band I don't know you're just so funny like our life was truly like those kinds of moments of of joy even though like you're just sort of walking the plank but you don't look at the plank you look at at the person who's walking with you Aaron and I wrote his obituary together on November 11th, I remember it because Aaron had been not doing well, and he had not been doing well for a long time, and he'd started to have seizures, um, and I'd never seen him have one. He'd had two. He had had the one that you know helped his find his diagnosis. He had a seizure at work, and then I, he started having them at home, and those kept happening. And I called the the I called his doctor and. This doctor said, you know, just go, go to the ER tomorrow and, and they'll they'll check it out. And we brought him to the ER and um the people who opened the curtain were one, the hottest doctor I've ever seen worked in the ER. It was like a living Ken doll. It made no sense. I'm actually uncomfortable around men that good looking. I don't even like like them. I just wanna like slap them or something. I didn't, but so the hot doctor came in and then the curtain opens and it's Aaron's nurse practitioner from the oncology department and it's his social worker. And they are lovely women. Do you wanna see them at the same time? No, you don't. And they explained to Aaron that there wasn't any more treatment to do. Um, that the tumor is back, obviously. That's why he'd been having all those seizures and it was growing really quickly and that They just wanted him to have, like, a good quality of life. And they're really good at making it sound like it's your choice. And I remember Aaron going, well, I don't want to die, but if you're telling me I have to. And we were, like, laughing and crying. And um, we went and got pancakes. And then we went home and we wrote his obituary. Permort Aaron Joseph, age 35, died peacefully at home on November 25th. After complications from a radioactive spider bite that led to years of crime fighting and a years long battle with a nefarious criminal named cancer who has plagued our society for far too long civilians will recognize him best as Spider-Man and thank him for his many years of service protecting our city, his family knew him only as a kind and mild mannered art director. A designer of websites and t-shirts and concert posters who always had the right cardigan and the right thing to say, even if it was wildly inappropriate. Aaron was known for his long, entertaining stories, which he loved to repeat often. In high school, he was in the band The Asparagus Children, which reached critical acclaim in the northern suburbs. As an adult, he graduated from the College of Visual Arts, which also died an untimely death recently, and worked in several agencies around Minneapolis settling in as an interactive associate creative director at Cole McFoy. Aaron was a comic book aficionado, a pop culture encyclopedia, and always the most fun person at any party. He is survived by his parents, his sisters, his first wife, Gwen Stefani, current wife, Nora, and their son, Ralph, who will grow up to avenge his father's untimely death. So I don't really know how to tell you how to find Playfulness in those moments, I can tell you that it's probably already there. Like the people who are listening to this, who are going through something hard, who are going through the worst thing in their life, they already know that it's possible to find joy. They already know because they already feel it. Because feeling that deep of despair opens you up to the depth of like every emotion. It's like feeling in high definition the good things and the bad things. So the people who need to be told that are the people who haven't suffered yet. So that's who this is for, is for people who have not been through it yet. You will, like literally everyone you love is going to die. So look forward to that. (laughs) But you'll have the hardest thing in your life happen. And within that, that all awful, terrible, horrible situation, there will be these moments of joy, and it won't make it better, and it won't make it worth it, but they'll be there. I mean, you know, I had a, I had a blog during this time, and when I look back at the writing on it, I think, wow, this is really pointed. I was truly trying to, like, tell people how to interact with us, because even if something sad happens to you and this is really at the basis of like all the work that I want to do in the world like you are not your sad story and that you can be going through something really difficult it can be the hardest thing you are going through and you can hate every minute of it and you can still find something to laugh about.
1: Nora's story is so inspiring to me. We all have our traumas including me. But I have to find time for lightness, too. We are complex beings with more than just one emotion, and the mark of a high-functioning woman is being able to be many things at once. And let's face it, ladies, sometimes functioning in this life is more than enough. Our final storyteller today is one of the greatest soccer players of all time. Do I even have to introduce her? Because you already know who she is. That's right, Abby Wambach. She's won two Olympic gold medals. She's been named FIFA World Player of the Year, and she's a six-time winner of the US Soccer Athlete of the Year Award. And she is the all-time leading goal scorer in international soccer history. Ah, So it's safe to say Abby is an expert on playing as part of a team. I'm not a professional athlete, obviously, but teamwork is a big part of my life. But sometimes I wonder how I can be competitive while still being a good teammate. As women, we are always told to play nice. Should we listen? How can we have fun when the pressure's on? Maybe the solution is to redefine what it means to play. Abby's going to break it down for us.
3: Being the youngest of seven, I think I have felt like I've been on a team for my whole life. You know, from the time that I probably could stand up, I was trying to get involved in some kind of sport. Watching my brothers and sisters play and not being able to walk yet and maybe not being able to run yet. I was able to, to kind of observe them, and because of that, it gave me kind of this desire, like, oh, I'm going to show them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be better than them one day. You know, I was jumping off the diving board at, at two years old, You know, riding down the, the driveway on a, on a two-wheel bicycle. I had never ridden a bike before, but I just had seen my brothers and sisters do it so many times that I just I saw it, so I wanted to do it. My first three soccer games, I actually ended up scoring 27 goals, so from that perspective, you know, my parents were a little bit shocked and awed that I was able to do that. And th- that was my first experience at being in a team other than my family. Um, and I remember after those 27 goals, my mom had said to me, Abby, you know, why, why don't you pass the ball more? Because she was worried about me like being, um, you know, that stereotypical best player on the team who just doesn't pass and um, isn't really liked by by their teammates, um, and I and I said something, and, and this is this is proof that you can learn to become a good leader. I said, well, the whole point of, of playing soccer is scoring more goals than the other team, and if I can do that better than anybody, I don't see what the problem is. My mom laughed and she said, okay, we're gonna have a little bit of work to do here. So the truth about being on a team is that there is no perfect team, no no championship team I've ever been on runs a hundred percent smoothly gone are the days where there's this authoritarian coach or a few leaders on the team that can make things happen because they tell their rookies or the role players or the younger players what to do you have to actually incorporate everybody's skill set you know it's not easy to get a collective group of people on the same page or beating as one, as this one collective heartbeat, it's actually the most difficult thing. If it were easy, then every team would win every, every time that they stepped on the pitch or field or in the boardroom or whatever we're talking about. It is so hard to manage human beings. It takes extreme effort, it takes extreme love, And it takes extreme surrendering. Uh, I think that the times that my teams have won championships, we were able to get, for the most part, all of the players beating as one. Many people think when they look at the women's national team, oh gosh, they're all best friends and that's why they win. And for the most part, we are friends, you know? But there, there are moments that we have to have hard conversations and we have to get on each other because at the end of the day, Championship mindset and elite athlete mindset is about completing the goal and getting to a final and winning that final. For instance, uh, when I was playing in in 2015, my coach and I, we decided, and and the coaching staff, we decided that I would help my team better coming off the bench. And for a veteran, a player who had played. You know, over a decade as the leading goal scorer and um, the player who'd played many, many minutes, uh, almost every game, almost every minute of every championship, I had an opportunity there to become an individual and sulk and complain and be upset by this decision. But my own personal feelings didn't matter uh, as much as winning did. And the only way you can actually accomplish big goals, big dreams championships, whatever it might be, you have to collectively figure out a way to get on the same page and respect each other. Winning is defined differently by every person and every team and every business. And and these are really important questions to discuss with the collective so that we all know what our heart is trending to and trying to beat towards, right? So for our national team winning was not just about <clears throat> standing at the top podium getting gold medals wrapped around our necks you know we wanted to win with honor we wanted to win with class winning also can mean at times losing right because the biggest lessons in our lives are done when we lose or we fail or we don't accomplish our our goal so maybe our future self, right? Maybe we have to go through and experience some of that pain, some of that failure in order to win in the end, in the long run. You know, we're all playing a long game here, but too many of us are trying to to sprint through our life. And uh, we can't expect, especially women, women have the standard of excellence, of, of perfection, because there's fewer women in the workplace. There's fewer women uh, even in professional sports. And so our standards Um, and and for the history of of human history are so high that we don't believe that we're given any grace in in the failure. But in fact, I have experienced the opposite, that the times that I have failed the most, the times that I have not quote-unquote won, even by the standards that we set as a team, I know that those moments, those failures are the things that turned me and my life into beautiful moments. I love sport, right? It, and I love competition. Um, and I think because of that, I have found a way to make play and put play in in the most unplayful-like things, like doing errands with my wife. You know, I'll be dancing in the car, or I'll be I'll be dancing in the line at Target, or or something like that. So it's not hard for me to get into a playful mindset. And because I played sport for so long, and I played soccer for so long. You know, I, I felt like I killed so many birds with one stone. I was able to play a sport. I was able to earn money. I was able to stay fit. I was able to travel the world. I was able to hang out with my friends basically all day. Um, and so I tried to replicate that that lifestyle. Um, having having retired a couple years ago, I try to do that in my in my daily life now. I am Abby Wambach, former U.S. national team player and the dreamer of
1: changing the world. Okay, let me just say it. We're all thinking it. Abby is goals. Or as my cousins might say, goals. Now, after listening to these three incredible women, I am fired up and ready to play. I know you are too. Grab a pen and paper, draw something. Yes, you can. Turn up your favorite Ri Ri song and dance with your kids. Find a soccer ball and do your best Abby impression. Or just remember that thing that you loved to do when you were young. I'm gonna go run out and create a dodgeball league that I'm never gonna attend. <laughs> Even if you don't think you have time, give it to yourself. And speaking of, next week's episode is all about that very subject, time. And how learning how to value our time is one of the most powerful things women can do. Like when I stopped everything to go eat that taco and get a manicure yesterday? Yep, I cherished that time. And no, I am not kidding. That taco was tasty AF. In all seriousness, the older and busier I get, the more I value my time. And so should you. So I am very excited for you to hear what next week's storytellers have to say on the topic. Did we mention Maria Menunos was going to be on the show telling us about how she learned her greatest secret about time? The secret was that none of
2: this matters. Making moves in our own time You're so damn perfect in your
1: on this episode of How It Is, you heard from Chantel Martin, Nora McInerney, and Abby Wambach. I'm Diane Guerrero, and I'm a badass queen, protector of justice, daughter of immigrants, changemaker, and human lover. How It Is is a production of Hello Sunshine. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi, Charlotte Coe, Rebecca Lair, and Reese Witherspoon. Our senior producers are Jillian Ferguson and Kara Hart. Our development producer is Mary Phillips Sandy. Sound designed by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song, Queen, is written and performed by Victoria Canon. Say it again, say it again, say it.